Hello, and welcome to a pandemic podcast. Welcome listeners. Today, we're going to be diving in to a report that gives excellent recommendations on how to do things safely in schools. And then we're going to be talking about how none of those things were done. And it's good to acknowledge and understand all of the information that is known, despite not seeing it implemented in the places that we need to see these implemented. And then we're going to see places where they are implemented, spaces where billionaires exist. So for today, we have the Lamrock Report. It's a report to the Legislative Assembly, and it was compiled by the Child and Youth Care Advocate for the province of New Brunswick. Its full title is Issues and Recommendations Arising from the Decision of the Department of Health and the Department of Education and Early Childhood Development to Lift Certain COVID-19 Restrictions in New Brunswick Schools. So let's discuss. Chris, can you tell us more about this report? Sure. As we know, on March 14th, 2022, all mandated pandemic protections were removed in New Brunswick. Just about a month later, on April 21st, is when this report was submitted to the legislature. So it was completed after there was a lot of public concern over the decision to remove masks in schools and uh, feeling that the directives for students who were positive or symptomatic, uh, what parents should be doing with those kids was pretty unclear. We had just come out of two years of very strong communication about protections, uh, many mandated protections, particularly in the interests of schools. And we had sort of instantly turned on a dime and gone to nothing. So, of course, a lot of people were concerned. So the, this dramatic change in the narrative we'd been hearing from public health and the Department of Education for the previous two years was, was very dramatic. And based on those concerns, Lamrock wrote to the chief medical officer of health, Jennifer Russell, to essentially ask three things that his office was being asked and that he was going to put into this report. And I'll read these right from the report. So these three things were, uh, number one, what specific information, data, advice, or studies from Russell's office led to the decision by the Department of Education and Early Childhood Development to reduce or remove COVID restrictions, such as masking? Number two, what, if any, indicators is the Office of the Chief Medical Officer of Health tracking or measuring to determine if the decision has impacted the safe learning environment in an unexpected ways? Essentially, are they doing anything after they've removed it to see if that was the right choice? Number three, what, if any, data or developments would cause the office to amend the advice given to the Department of Education Early Childhood Development and advise that they should return some or all of the COVID protections, including masking. So the report contains findings and recommendations subsequent to Russell's response to those three questions and some legal guidance on the whole topic. And I'd kind of like to start with that legal guidance, like right out of the gate, Lamrock states, I think it's even on the very first page, 
He says, quote, when a child or a member of their immediate family would be at risk of death or serious complications by the contraction of COVID, even if fully vaccinated, and if the conditions in the common learning environment create a reasonable risk of that child contracting and communicating COVID, then the district is under a legal and ethical obligation to provide free services in an accommodated setting during the period of risk. Now, this was written at a time when we were very familiar with the narrative of risk for COVID being a straight line. It was don't get COVID, but if you do, hopefully you won't have to go to the hospital. But if you do, hopefully you won't end up in the ICU. And if you do, hopefully you won't die. Now we have a much broader perspective of how COVID progresses. And we know that it isn't necessarily a straight line. It branches off. There are many serious and problematic long-term consequences of a COVID infection. And focusing just solely on that single line, as we did back then, is, is too narrow of a focus. So this concept that Lamrock puts out here right at the beginning is interesting. I find it interesting for, for kind of two reasons. One, it absolutely lays responsibility on the districts to accommodate kids who are, you know, quote unquote, at risk. But also it, it frames that risk as, as this risk of death or, or serious complications in contracting COVID. Written when it was, I'm assuming that they, this likely meant they were echoing the common narrative of serious complications, meaning hospitalization and death. But we know that everyone is susceptible to long COVID. So taken in today's context, this is suggesting that literally every child in school deserves to have an accommodated setting in which to learn. Well, and I can speak for myself, for listeners, because I used to be a classroom teacher and there was also a time where I was a resource teacher and that role in New Brunswick is someone who works with children who require different supports or accommodations to have their needs met in a successful manner in the regular classroom as much as possible. So that's always been the case on paper. Any child requiring or needing accommodations, those accommodations have supposedly always been there. But then unfortunately, for myself as a parent and also for myself as someone who's worked within the school system, I've seen how theory versus practice. And that's something that many parents have talked about throughout the years, including while I was actively employed with the school district, is when you've got lots of kids involved, unfortunately, sometimes not all children's needs are met. It's tough. So that was kind of the framework of the system before the pandemic. So now kind of seeing this document come into play during a pandemic within the context of the school system, it was already a system that wasn't meeting every child's needs, despite it being written and mandated down on paper that that was supposed to be the case. For sure. I think it's interesting that the way you've discussed that, because it seems it's like it's that lens that was always historically applied to at-risk students. These students were seen as one-offs, you know, isolated situations where accommodations might need to be provided. And in the context of this pandemic, particularly with what we know today, all children are at risk. And they still approach it, though, especially at this point in time when the report was written, 
as one-off situations. And we've seen how the department has addressed requests for accommodation. They go into that same bureaucratic red tape procedural situation where parents are left trying to prove the onus is on them to prove that there is a risk to themselves and their children and their family due to this pathogen. And of course, that conversation is over now because this has all gone away. It's just kind of faded into our memories, but the risk is still there. Kids are still at risk. And we're sitting at a situation now where we've got about 90% of the kids in the province having had at least one infection and there's no accommodation. There's no consideration, like beyond an accommodation for a situation that for a kid who is, you know, by some legal measure or provable measure at risk, there's no consideration for the basic health and well-being of any child in the New Brunswick school system. And I'd go so far as to say the Canadian school system with respect to an airborne pathogen that can cause long-term cardiovascular, pulmonary, neurological problems in an entire generation of children. It's, oh my God. It's so good to have this conversation, but at the same time, like for listeners, like I'm just sitting here with my head in my hand because for anyone listening, either you've been in school yourself in some sort of capacity, or maybe you have children who are who are in school systems or whatever your interaction. And I guess for myself, where I was trained to be a teacher to help in those school systems, And it's also kind of interesting where if I was still actively employed within those school systems, I wouldn't be able to speak to you today because that would have to be something where the union would speak on my behalf on different educational issues. So I just want to recognize how I'm thankful to be here to speak on these different educational issues that I've experienced and to be able to speak openly. And also the reason why I'm not currently employed in the school district is because the schools aren't a safe environment for me to work in either. So it's it's just like it's it's unpacking the layers of this environment that we currently live in. Um, Kay, you, you were going to chime in. It sounded like I was just exclaiming because <laughs> it's um it's it's really horrible. Like we've learned so much about long COVID. We in the public come to find out through our freedom of information request that PHAC and hundreds of officials throughout Canada knew a lot about long COVID even a year ago when the decision was made to drop school masks and to drop isolation. People that made these decisions should have known quite a lot about long COVID because they were getting that information from PHAC in those evidence summaries that were being delivered to their inboxes every two weeks. But in the public, like they hadn't, nobody had tipped that hand yet. Even the people who were being kept appraised of that situation were pretending like they didn't know anything. And so for most people in the public, by March, April, 2022, you know, you did hear the odd media story about long COVID. But like it, it's, it was still kind of really portrayed as like a really rare side effect, right? You, we didn't know how many people were affected and we didn't know necessarily, you know, how at risk youth were. But the people making these decisions had been receiving those long COVID evidence updates. And so they should have known better. But it's just shocking, like going back to, you know, kind of what Chris originally said, 
transporting ourselves back to the experience living through March 2022, February 2022, when the whiplash happened, where the government went from in January, we had three weeks of level three, where in-person school was largely not on. So we went from that, as we discussed in our review episode, we went from that to pretty much a month after classes resumed, having that final press conference. So that was quite a big shift, even though things in New Brunswick were just as dangerous as ever. So it's, it's really interesting to read this now a year later and to be kind of dropped back into that time where, as Chris said initially, I think a lot of us were still thinking about the outcomes from acute infection and whether that was going to result in hospitalization or whether that was going to result in intubation. And we weren't as much thinking about long COVID was, was on our minds, but it wasn't in the forefront like it is today. And same with the other various health effects, such as increased rates of developing diabetes, increased all-cause mortality risks, increased strokes, increased heart problems, you know, the neurological stuff that we know about today. That, that stuff was not as much in the forefront back then. It's really strange to kind of do this time travel of going back to remember what things were like then. I just looked up just out of interest. I mean, I know that one of the arguments that I made at the time was that cases beget cases and that school spread was going to impact the community. So I just looked up out of curiosity and picked a random headline. NB reports 10 more COVID-19 deaths, 102 new hospital admissions. From April 19th, 2022, this was a global story. So since eliminating masking requirements last month, New Brunswick has been under pressure to reverse course. But on Wednesday, Health Minister Dorothy Shepard defended the decision, saying vaccination remains the most important protection against COVID-19. So it talks about 10 deaths happening in the period of April 10th to 16th. The number of hospitalizations was 79, and that's not even the health authority number. That's like the provincial number. 15 new admissions to ICU and an average of 422 PCR positives a day, getting to almost 3,000 for the week, and then over 2,600 self-reported rapid test positives. So wow, were we ever a COVID soup in April 2022? And also for listeners, just a note um, in regards to the numbers of cases is just speaking about the province of New Brunswick, we're a very small province. So our population is around 800,000, smaller than the city of Ottawa. So just to kind of put that into context when it comes to numbers of hospitalizations and people uh, testing positive. So in April, it was very much a COVID soup. And that's complete opposite thing of what you want, obviously, for the protection of community and people, but then also for each infection is a new opportunity for a different variant or a different strain. It's just, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating to be looking back and seeing this and then to also be recording this when we are still currently living in a COVID soup. One of the things that happened around this time when the when the report came out, there was a lot of discussion about, and, and we mentioned it just a minute ago, about uh, the public pressuring the province to return masking to schools. And what we saw sort of play out in the media was this back and forth between Jennifer Russell, the chief medical officer of health, and the uh, then minister of education and early childhood development, Dominic Cardi, both of which who were claiming what it was the other's responsibility and discretion to implement a mask mandate in school. 
Lamrock actually addresses this in the report. Uh, he confirms that it was certainly within both Russell's and Cardi's legislative power to move to protect kids in schools. And this is something that they continuously passed back and forth. Uh, Russell stated that Cardi could implement a mask mandate in schools at his discretion. Cardi stated he would follow public health recommendations and that Russell could recommend a mask mandate to schools at her discretion. Lamrock, I assume, due to his being fairly close with Dominic Cardi, kind of gives him an out by pontificating in the report on the concept of legislated discretion and the fact that a minister like Cardi is well within reason to delegate that discretion to other decision maker, specifically public health. In this case, uh, Cardi repeated, and you probably remember this, Cardi kept repeating his we're following public health recommendations line uh, to the point of being tired some. But this is, to me, particularly, this is sort of a critical point in the story because we've discussed this previously. The authority of public health has been continuously deferred to throughout the entire pandemic. Higgs did it in press conferences. Cardi did it ad nauseum, particularly around this time. Lamrock, to a large extent, does it in this report by, to some degree, uncritically accepting the bizarro statements in Russell's response, which we'll we'll certainly get to. I have a quote from Cardi here, actually, where he said, ultimately, it is up to the folks who go to university for many years and acquire skills and competencies that I do not have to provide us with recommendations. This this is this is his line, right? And and you probably remember this. He was getting tired of being asked the same question. The question being, why don't you do the part of your job where you protect kids? And he would continuously defer to public health, defer to Jennifer Russell. And he got tired enough of saying it that he started evoking the concept of academic and medical competence housed within the Office of Public Health. And we see time and again that the actions or decisions that have been made by the government are given validity by being based on the quote-unquote recommendations of public health, public health being an entity with implied scientific authority. The decisions of basically all actors here are given legitimacy through this office. But as we came to understand fairly quickly, particularly after this report in our dive into right to information requests subsequent to this report, that legitimacy is manufactured. So the chief medical officer of health, as we know, is a political appointment with no regulatory oversight, apparently with immunity from any medical malfeasance. She's allowed to bolster her recommendations through the assumed competence and expertise associated with her credentials as a medical doctor, right? Like she is out there putting these things out to the public, putting these recommendations out to government, and people accept them and accept the policies that flow from those recommendations based on an inferred medical competency inside that office. The same situation is present in every province and territory. But again, this is this is a manufactured authority. It's a, it's a it's a mechanism through which politicians justify and excuse or exonerate their policies by appearing to to acquiesce to people who the public perceives as having sort of academic capital. Mm. And as I said, 
the facade starts to crumble in Russell's response to Lamrock, which we'll get into. And then, and then, of course, it later falls completely away when we receive the responses to the right to information requests that we file. Right. Which we only learned afterwards were taking place throughout this exact time period. Yeah. And, and if only the people involved had been transparent and honest, it wouldn't have turned out like this, right? Like it's shocking getting to look at basically the presentation, right? Like here's Dr. Russell's presentation to the class. Yeah. And even that is very poor as we're going to talk about. But then when you look at, okay, Dr. Russell, show your work. It's plagiarism for one, and it's last minute and it's nonsensical <laughs> and it's wrong and it's lies. Like all these claims yeah. about, about the mental health stuff in particular. I was thinking for a minute that we could back up and just discuss briefly the office of the Child and Youth and Seniors Advocate. For anybody that's listening from outside of New Brunswick, we have a Child and Youth Advocate and that person is a lawyer, Kelly Lamarck, who uh, used to be an education minister under a former government, right? Yes, correct. He used to be the education minister back when I was a teacher. From what I can recall, this office is fairly newly formed, right? Like this was one of his first reports since becoming the Child and Youth Advocate. So not not every province has a child and youth advocate, because I know that when the report came out, some provinces were like, oh, man, that's so neat. You know, why don't we have one of those? So th the thing that was kind of cool about it, too, was I find it really amazing to have this really well-reasoned examination of the decision and to have it be public, right? Like in Canada, there's not much else that we have that's similar to this. There were two lawyers in Alberta who issued a charter challenge. And I know there has been, you know, legal action pertaining to the safety of schools and vulnerable children in the context of the pandemic in Alberta. And I believe there was a statement by the Human Rights Office in British Columbia about the pandemic safety. And then there's this in New Brunswick. Nationwide, there's not really anything else that's been published that is equivalent to this. I feel like it's unique and valuable. I mean, obviously to New Brunswickers, but also just in a global way to have this kind of like legally well-reasoned examination of pandemic decision-making, right? And who gets to decide and on what grounds and should these decisions be re-examined and when and why, you know, it's, it's quite an amazing document. And unfortunately, like, like this government is just so stubborn regarding just trying to pretend the pandemic is not harmful to people, like that the virus is not harmful to people, like they're memory holding everything, even something as remarkable as this document, even something as remarkable as the PHAC long COVID information that was sent to them, even long COVID as a concept, even long COVID patients as people, right? Like this province is just trying to memory hole everything and it, it's frightening. So that's difficult, right? When you look at a document like this from an office like this, child and youth advocate to stand up for the children of New Brunswick. And it's really logical, right? This document feels like a defense of logic. It's good. And that meant nothing. It didn't result in any protections. And it, it, it's just so stunning. And the time frame on this, like I think you had mentioned, Chris, that the letter from Lamarck to Russell asking for her to show her work was dated March 30th. And this report is dated April 21st on the document itself. And I can just remember the elation that I felt when this came out. And when I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, our concerns have been validated. This helped to fight the gaslighting. 
the fact that this office put the time and resources into investigating this and writing it up and making it public, it made me feel like the reality that I was concerned about was reality, right? Rather than like, you know, because this was like peak gaslighting time, right? And even teachers were being gaslit by the New Brunswick Teachers Federation. That email that I read in a couple of episodes ago, people were being gaslit. It was pathologizing anybody's desire to still wear a mask. It really was. So then this report comes out about six weeks after the restrictions were and the protections were removed. And it was like, oh my gosh, okay, somebody with a real office and a real job. In addition to the 40 pediatricians that also thought this was a problem, here's this other person who also thinks that this is problematic. That was like, I was elated. I felt vindicated. I think we all did. And I recognized it was kind of a rare victory in advocacy and a rare victory, especially this was so quick, right? I remember that weekend, like his recommendation was revert to the status quo as of a few weeks ago, bring back the masks on Monday. Everyone's got a mask up again. And public health has got a month to re-examine the decision. I was so relieved that masks would be back on that Monday. And of course, you know, we can say now looking back, masks were not back on that Monday. I, as a layperson, I feel like he did a really good job with his report on a tight timeline. You know, it was it's well written. So if there's people out there that are listening to this and are interested in this kind of thing and haven't read his report yet, I do recommend it. It's good reading. Well, and also it's interesting in hindsight because the idea of mass being returned now a year later is like, what? Did we really expect that to happen? But I know that I did. And also at the time in the context, neighboring provinces did have mass in schools. So it was New Brunswick that was the outlier at the time. And this report showed that New Brunswick needed to fix what was happening because there were clear problems at play. So it didn't sound as outlandish back then as unfortunately it does now. Yes, such a good point. At the time, it was like, yes, of course, you know, like EI kept theirs, Newfoundland kept theirs, Nova Scotia at the last minute kept theirs. We were the only ones out of the Atlantic provinces to not have a mask requirement in schools. It's incredible how poor of a job the protection of children has been. Like, holy crap, how could we fail so badly in so many different ways at making things safe for kids? And this is really the crux of the question that uh, Lamrock put to Russell. And she responded in a four-page letter, which is worth the price of admission if you're going to read this report, because it is baffling. Lamrock receives his response from Jennifer Russell on April 8th, just before she leaves for approximately a year on paid leave. And he attempts to analyze the evidence that she has given him and tries to report in this document what he sees as her justifications for making this recommendation to the government. So in the report, uh, Lamrock summarizes the decision and Russell's justifications through several different lenses. First off, he looks at what he calls medical factors. 
In her letter, Russell states that the known case count for COVID among youth peaked around the middle of February, around February 18th, she says, and was declining at the time the mandate was lifted on March 14th. Now, known cases is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Uh, and soon after, the tracking of cases in schools was ended. So we don't really know what the outcome of any of that was or how well it had been being tracked at the time because the writing was on the wall that this information was going to be was not going to be collected for much longer mm. kids couldn't get pcrs anymore that's right um, as as of january 5th omicron hits over christmas the winter holiday period the testing is trying to keep up trying to keep up right but very soon into the new year they made this abrupt announcement that testing criteria are changing you can only get a pcr if you are under the age of two 50 or over immunocompromised pregnant or you live in a congregate setting like a shelter or correctional facility or if you are a healthcare worker or you work in a congregate living facility. So they made it impossible for most kids to get a PCR. And a little while after that, they did make it so that you could report a positive rapid test if people bother to obtain a test, because at that time you couldn't get a test until you were symptomatic. So you couldn't even have rapid tests at home in the event of becoming symptomatic and you couldn't get them on the weekend anymore. If you or someone in your household became symptomatic on like Friday at 4 p.m., you couldn't test until the pickup sites opened again on Monday morning. Just to add in too, that's for people living in one of the city centers. If you're living in a smaller town, there's pickup sites once a week. That's true. Good point. Yes, exactly. So, you know, you have to schedule your COVID symptoms to show up on Wednesday <laughs> night so that you could register for the once a week pickup on Thursday. Oh like, my goodness. So yeah, you couldn't get a test. And then let's say that you did have a test and tested. It was incumbent on you to go and register on the website, right? And and I will admit, because this happened in my household, when somebody tested positive, it was like two days later that I was like, oh, I, I should go and report that. Because for most families, reporting it to GNB is not not necessarily going to be the first thing that you think of. You might be trying to arrange for grocery delivery. You might be trying to figure out your in-home isolation, you know, call in sick, any of that stuff that you have to do. It is really insulting. And I had that highlighted too, Chris, in my notes, like, oh, the youth COVID cases are peaked. And it's like, okay, but don't you think that changing the variable of removing any protections just might have an influence on that number? Yeah. How can you and say they peaked when you're going to throw the match on the gasoline, right? In the hindsight we have now, too, with respect to the metrics that come out of that time, really demonstrate that the numbers they were looking at when they made this decision were not the numbers that were actually occurring in the community. We see that particularly with the deaths, which they marked as going consistently down, when in fact, now we know they were going consistently up. To the point where in April, we had the highest death toll of the entire pandemic. 
So it's, it's, it is baffling that in the midst of everything, every testing mechanism, every recording mechanism, every metric being in flux, being redefined, and at the same time in conflict with public health messaging, which was mixing from this is a serious problem all the way to you don't need to do anything about this anymore, that this was the atmosphere in which this decision was made and people were expected to understand that decision. And it's it's with respect to those case counts that she goes on in the letter to state that after the mandates were lifted, cases increased across the board. Like she says this outright in the letter to the advocate. But then she goes on to say that even though cases in children increased globally, the increase in case rates was more dramatic in children aged 5 to 11. She singles out this specific cohort. Then she goes on to suggest that this is due to a lower vaccination rate in this age group and then comes up with a conclusion. And this is critical here. She concludes that therefore vaccinations are a more critical variable than mask usage. So maybe we maybe we should repeat that. Across the board, kids were getting more and more COVID infections, but because unvaccinated kids were getting them slightly more quickly, she decides that masks were not as important as vaccination and therefore should be abandoned. It's important to keep in mind here, even Jennifer Russell at the beginning stages of the pandemic in 2020 and even in 2021, often preached about a layered approach, understanding that as vaccination numbers increased, they still had to put in place things like mandatory isolation and other protective measures to close that gap because the more layers of protection that you have, the better. And it's what makes this particular concept that she's bringing up in this letter, the idea that because unvaccinated kids were getting more infections or or they were getting them more rapidly at at a larger rate, that masks weren't important. And it's analogous to, to public safety, like going out and removing brakes off of cars because everybody's wearing their seatbelts. It just doesn't make any logical (laughs) sense whatsoever. And it it really terrifying. It really strikes me that she's put this out there. Like and she doubled down on this. There was a Telegraph Journal interview and and these are occurring for months after the mandates lifted about masks in schools because kids were getting sick and parents were getting sick and the hospitals were clogging up. In the Telegraph Journal in May, she dismissed the idea entirely of reinstating mask rules in schools, in her words, until vaccinations among children rose to a level the province considered acceptable. And it was like, it's like this weird ultimatum that she's putting out there and she's bargaining the health and well-being of New Brunswick children and their families against some weird pressure to get vaccinated. Now, I'm sure people were getting vaccinated and they were moving towards that. But part and parcel of this entire rhetoric at the time was that the pandemic was over. You know, like they they switched to a vaccines only approach. They're like, all you need to do is vaccinate yourself. And so we're removing all protections. And then they went, okay, here's your vaccinations. And people were saying, why do we need vaccinations? There's no protections. There's obviously nothing we need to protect ourselves from. Why would we get a vaccination? And they've dug their own grave with this. Also, too, at this time, something I just realized is that there were no vaccines for under fives. 
oh baby, as the parent of a kid who was under five at the time, I have never, ever forgotten that frigging fact because this was so upsetting to me. And Chris, I think you're in the same boat. How on earth did they decide that everything has to be managed when there's no vaccine for anybody? Everything still is managed when there's no vaccine for the younger adult. But people just arbitrarily ran out of patience for protecting an entire segment of the population for which no vaccine was available. By the time the first under five children could actually get a dose in their arm, it was very late July. And New Brunswick didn't have anything until that first week of August. But as the parent of a kid who was under five at the time when my elected government removed all protections and made every single building and area and public space unsafe for kids under five, I will never forget that. They didn't even acknowledge that. They didn't even acknowledge the fact that they were just going to let COVID be everywhere. There's babies and toddlers out there who cannot even mask. This decision to remove protections was made completely ignoring this segment of the population who didn't even have the option to get vaccinated and wouldn't for like six more months. It was like they were not thought of at all, how vulnerable they would be. And as a result, the vast majority of Canada's kids under five got infected before they ever had a chance to be vaccinated. Yeah. On the topic of controversial takes, at the end of the medical factors that Lamrock cites from Russell's letter is her claim that public health mandates contribute to learning difficulties, depression, anxiety, uh, and these kind of things in kids. And it uh, gets into his next category of factor, which is pedagogical factors. So Russell goes on, and this is one of the most infamous parts of her letter. Uh, she goes on to provide a list of trends observed by the Department of Education, including an observation of an increased number of four-year-old children identified as at risk for language development, regardless of the fact that two-thirds of four-year-old children are not even in kindergarten yet. And another group of children identified as at risk were 18 to 24 month olds. So these kids are obviously not in school and therefore are not subject to mandatory masking. And therefore, it becomes very dubious why this is cited as an issue or a justification for removing masks in schools. She also includes mention of the now infamous uh, parole article, which she claimed concluded the impact of mask wearing will require future explicit measures to teach children to read facial expressions. So this is her claim. It's infamous, of course, because it was soon discovered not to actually exist. Local media reached out to uh, Manon Parole and who had no sweet clue what Russell was talking about. So after a couple of pages of anecdotes and conjecture and what turned out to be falsified evidence, Russell makes sure to add the caveat that, quote unquote, there is no evidence of significant negative cognitive impacts of mask wearing in children. So there's a whole page in this letter about the negative impacts of masking on children. And then a disclaimer, it says, actually, you know, we can't have an actual causal relationship here. And then finally, Lamrock goes into what he calls political factors. So Russell made sure to include in her letter that old standard, everyone else is doing it. 
which I don't think there is any value in actually discussing here. Uh, we've heard that tale many times, and it is as soon as it is uttered, we all know that it has no value whatsoever. And uh, Lamrock himself stated in the report that, and I'm quoting here, there appears to be an overweighting of following other jurisdictions. And he said, we were struck by the fact that public health has placed significant weight on decisions from other provinces without citing the data or reasoning of those other jurisdictions. So the whole letter is a shit show and Lamrock accepts it as valid to some degree, but not completely uncritically. In the next part of the report, he goes on to state what his concerns are with what Russell has said. And I think this is probably the most poignant part of the report. And it's something that, as you mentioned earlier, Kay, was very validating. When we read this at the time, we had that sense that this is a public official who is getting it who is seeing the same things we are and pointing out the very obvious problems in the narrative of public health. Uh, and there's a few concerns that he cited. Uh, first and foremost, he mentioned that, of course, like we just discussed at length, masking and vaccines are not mutually exclusive, right? He says the response and public statements from public health seem to suggest that masks are effective, but are not being mandated because vaccines are more effective. And he goes on to say, how masking was dropped while the vaccine rate among kids was, was, in his words, unacceptably low. And it's true. And that number hasn't increased, again, most likely due to the inference that there is no reason to protect yourself from something that nobody is moving to protect you from. I've often wondered how it was that Russell came to this point, because truly it's one of the most empty, logic devoid, circularly reasoned and just fallacious concepts I've heard suggested during the entire pandemic. Certainly the most asinine justification that came out of New Brunswick public health. She says it all the time. She says yeah. it. And it's actually like if we had a New Brunswick public health doll that you pulled the string and it had three or five phrases <laughs> that it would say, <laughs> one of them would be things are stable. One yeah. of them would be vaccination is the most important step you can take to protect yourself. One of them would be we'll tell you if there's anything new to tell you. One of them would be, we have always said, and one of them would be, we've always expected there to be a bump in cases. But like, it's it's the only thing that you ever hear her say in an interview is yeah. the most important thing you can do is go get vaccinated, which is such a tricky line to walk because I do feel like there's a segment of the population that is really motivated by wanting to follow the science and wanting to be on the side of science and wanting to be extremely loyal to vaccines to the point that they come back around to being anti-science because they're ignoring the field of respiratory protection and industrial hygiene, yeah. right? And so I feel 100% very comfortable in myself being critical of claims that have been made about vaccination and being cognizant of the limitations of vaccines because I feel like I'm dealing in reality. I am pro-vaccination. If there is a problem with our vaccination, how are we doing anybody any favors by pretending we do not see it? It's, it's completely baffling to me how anybody can claim to be like pro-science and pro-facts and ignore N95s. To be biased against masks and to be pro-science, no, you have to go back and sit down and read some more because you're, you're being incongruent with reality. 
just saying the words vaccination is the best thing you can do doesn't make that true. And it certainly doesn't seem to have increased vaccination rates. Maybe instead, if they talked about the kinds of things that happen in your body after a COVID infection and the fact that when you get vaccinated, you can reduce some of those things and, and reduce some of those risks and, uh, you know, have, have an effect on transmission, maybe that would be more effective. There are layers and we should be using all of them, including vaccination, including respiratory protection, which is respirators, including cleaning the air, including humidity. You know, it's important that the humidity in indoor spaces be in the right range, including supporting paid sick time and allowing people to safely isolate without fear of losing their job and losing their income. All of those things. So the fact that they just sit there and they say the best thing you can do is get vaccinated. Like mm, it's it's not working to get more people vaccinated. <laughs> And, and they've just done a spectacular job of biasing people against respirators, which they've barely ever told people about. People deserve to be told about N95s and people deserve to be told that COVID is airborne. If you want to talk about like freedom and choice, having the information that you need to be free from illness and to make choices that actually align with reality Giving people the correct information is a great way to promote freedom and choice. I think I'm going to use a term that I've seen Chris use before, which is the abdication of responsibility. And a vaccine-only approach or a vaccine primary approach or just saying vaccines are our best approach is the perfect shift from a communal responsibility to an individual responsibility. And it's also very conveniently invisible. So there's no visual reminder or visual check that people are actively doing something to keep themselves or to keep others safe. So it's basically <laughs> like... If they were maliciously planning this, they couldn't have done a better job because it's them washing their hands of it and saying, get vaccinated. Bye. And I think we've talked about this before, but it's not even easy to get vaccinated anymore. And it hasn't been for about a year. Uh, just before this report came out, the health authority mass vaccination clinics very suddenly shut down. All of a sudden threw up all these barriers to, to vaccination. And that's not a recent development. It hasn't been easy to get vaccinated all year. I, I feel like I say this, maybe I do say this every episode, <laughs> but I'm going to say it again in that the Public Health Agency of Canada has been consistent in their messaging. And I actually just saw an ad on Instagram today talking about multiple layers of protection. It had vaccinations, it had ventilation and masking and cleanliness. So it showed like a person washing their hands. So that's something where the Public Health Agency of Canada has been consistent in saying, we have multiple layers, we have multiple approaches and ways and tools to stay safe. And this is a big difference for people listening who are maybe more familiar with the American system is that in the United States, they have the Center for Disease Control, which is a national body that does have some control over what happens in each state. Whereas we've seen in Canada with the Public Health Agency of Canada, they kind of exist. And basically, they've been shouting into the air. And then each province has its own 
authorities over how they navigate health. And then we have the Canada Health Act, which says that provinces have to do the minimum standards, but some provinces don't even follow that. And that was before like, the pandemic. Like New Brunswick. And, and you had received that mailer um, in December, right? With, it was yeah. like a nice um, postcard from PHAC, right? Yep. And it was awesome. It was awesome. And like, it was just um, like, it was a non-addressed mailer. So it was just kind of like a, a mass mailer sent out to, I don't know how many people, lots of different people. And it was the perfect timing because it was right before Christmas gathering. And it just talked about multiple layers of approach. Like, here's some ways to keep yourself safe. And vaccination was one of the aspects listed. It's, it's, it's really sad. It's really sad because it didn't have to be this way. And it's really easy to imagine multiple ways that this could be so much better. I, and I really worry for New Brunswick because we're starting to see some great advances in other provinces with long COVID education, communication clinics, and with air quality bills, uh, private members bills for air quality in Quebec and Ontario. I guess I really worry that, you know, in New Brunswick, we had the wonderful advantage of the kind of first year of the pandemic where we had generally really good control of the situation and there weren't many cases. So things were fairly safe. You know, their success bred success. And so I guess I just worry that on the, the other end of this, that other provinces are going to face reality quicker than New Brunswick. They're going to adapt quicker to the fact that it's airborne pathogen you know, I, I worry that we're going to be one of the laggards on the back end of actually deploying solutions. And, and it was really insulting, actually, reading this report, reading so much language around Dr. Russell and her response to Dr. to Mr. Lamarck trying to say like, oh, you know, don't worry, we're going to reexamine this. And the epidemiological team is on this. But now that we know that what was happening in the background while she was doing this, March 30th, Lamrock sent his letter to Dr. Russell. And it's actually super interesting. I hadn't noticed this until today. I've read this document a few times, but I've never read it closer than today. And Lamrock's letter to Russell on March 30th said to her, this sentence is amazing. This is his last sentence. He says, as I understand that this information is already readily available in a usable format as it has been used by DEECD, the Department of Education and Early Childhood Development, I would be grateful if we could have a reply by April 8th, 2022. I thank you for your assistance. I love what he did there, which is that if the education department was telling him, oh, public health has made these recommendations, we defer to them. He's saying to her, Department of Education has already told me that you've made recommendations. So they're already in usable format. So it should only take you a week to send them to me is basically what he's saying. And I, I had missed that the first few times that I read this whole report. And so she had a week to come up with her reasoning why it was safe to drop protection, which, of course, couldn't be done. And that's what one of our right to information requests unveiled, which was yeah. that on Monday, April 4th, five days after Lamrock sent this letter, that's when she's calling in her team and saying, I, I need negative data and messaging on youth and masks. And, and she specifically requested biased information about masks. We have that in our right to information request. And she only did submit her letter to him on April 8th on the day of the deadline. It's so gross to read her saying these words that like, yeah, everything's hunky-dory and we'll tell you if there's anything to tell you. And then now we know from only, only, does anybody know this? The only reason anybody knows this is because we submitted right to information requests. 
This isn't Telegraph Journal submitting right to information request. This isn't CBC. This isn't anybody else submitting right to information requests. The only reason that anybody knows the fact that she specifically requested negative data and messaging on masks, the fact that they were getting these long COVID updates every two weeks at this time, at this exact time, that they decided to remove masks and isolation from everywhere, including in schools. They had tons of information explaining how bad long COVID was and the fact that some people never recover. And they still did this. And they still tried to pretend, oh, we've passed the peak of cases. And nobody would know that if it wasn't for us. Like, that's terrifying. And if we're honest, really, the majority and, and the large majority of people do not know even why masks were removed. Right. They they don't know that Russell claimed there were harms of masking. And if they do, they're not aware of, let alone have they probably read this report. And if they have, then they almost surely aren't aware that the crazy claims in Russell's response were shown to be lies and fabricated and, and last minute desperate grasps like we've seen in the RTIs. I mean, let's be real. Our reach is not as large as a the legacy media. It's not as large as the provincial government. We've managed to inform a lot of people about this. But the vast majority of the population in Brunswick has no idea that Russell lied and probably doesn't even know why masks were removed. They just take it for granted that they were removed. You know, the, the, like, like to put it in a simple way, like the, the majority of people know masks came off and, and they're going to make the logical inference that that was because there's no longer a need for masks. There's no longer a need to be protected. And this is the danger, like we talked about earlier, in the manufactured legitimacy and authority of public health. If they're questioned on their methodologies like they are here, they make brief and loud proclamations about the imagined problems, negative impacts of masking, and, and they hold these things up with an implication that they are concerned about the health and well-being of the public. And they do that so the public gets to understand, oh, there's a grievous situation here, which has obviously precipitated these policy decisions. And then they sort of whisper at the end, public health goes, oh yeah, but just, you know, we're not sure. We have correlation. We don't have causation. We, we, you know, we'd like you to think this. We were not positive. It's not entirely true. And we see this time and again, right? This authoritative closed-ended statements that fall apart under even the slightest scrutiny. And we, we say this all the time. The purpose of those statements delivered in that fashion, that loud, quick, closed-ended statements is not to answer questions. It's to stop questions. So yeah, the vast majority of people know masks came off and the vast majority of people still hold a belief that the systems of public health and government in general are established and acting as a service to them. And they, those systems are in place to protect them if they need protecting. So surely if they needed protecting those systems, public health, Jennifer Russell would be out there front and center to save them. The, the few of us who, who keep our minds on these things and, and have been digging and digging and digging, the, the ones who follow the information and the, the data, the little trickle of data that comes out and the policy changes, uh, we knew there was a problem. 
and we felt vindicated by the Lamrock report, but it was ultimately it's toothless, you know, and, and the few people who were asking got a sufficiently verbose response and government said, thank you very much for the recommendations and summarily discarded it. And life just continues and the public discourse evolves away from any mention of masking or even any reason why we would consider masking. And the end of the pandemic is sociologically constructed. It's made secure, ultimately, by public acceptance of the myth of that legitimacy and authority and competence of public health. I was just thinking about how there are so many people in New Brunswick who wouldn't really question a physician. And, and there are people who get really upset with us for critiquing um, exactly the, mm-hmm. the job that public health has been doing. And I think people have got to realize that there's such a big shift that's taken place. The big difference between the people who acted quickly in March 2020 to protect us and those largely the same people were still in these, you know, named in these documents. The people that signed these various letters in April of 2022 are largely the same people that, you know, started the whole thing off in, in early 2020. So it's not just that the jobs have changed hands and that things have gotten worse because of that. They're the very same people. And so it's really unfortunate because I think that people really earned some halos in the first year of the pandemic. And those halos have stayed, even though the people to which they're attributed have really tarnished the halos themselves. But in the eyes of the public, people either aren't looking anymore or they're still seeing what they saw in in 2020. I think there's an argument to be made, too, though, that in the beginning of the pandemic, those halos were achieved by some good luck. And what we see now is that people are very reluctant, like you said, to to not trust their doctor or criticize public health because there's to do so implements in them a, a very strong cognitive dissonance that the systems that are in place to protect them, these systems that people count on, they legitimately count on these things being there when they need them, actually aren't there and probably mm-hmm. never were. And that is a very difficult pill to swallow. But if we just put our heads in the sand and say, no, it can't be like that, this, you know, that's too dark, (laughs) then nothing will ever change. And I think the beginning of the pandemic shone a bright light onto this. It didn't seem to be so dramatically bad here in New Brunswick, but the light that shone in other provinces across the country illuminated a lot of the problems immediately. The pandemic presented an issue of a magnitude that sufficiently exposed how much of a lie the legitimacy of government was when it's based on a system which is said to protect the people. Here, we got a nice show at the beginning, and that faded over two years. And I think Mm -hmm. what we saw in the beginning of 2022 was it catching up to our system. And they, they couldn't talk over it. They couldn't pat themselves on the back. It was over for them. And the cracks showed and the thing fell apart. Mm, And what reality caught up. Yeah. And, and so the move was away from keeping pace with what was initially, you know, a fairly small magnitude problem relative to what we saw across the world and into them doing what they would have done if it was a big problem at the beginning, which was 
you're fucked. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Yes. And this is uh, like, this is such a challenging conversation to have, but also I'm so thankful to be having it because it's one based in reality. And oddly, there's a lot of conversations that aren't like that. But I guess that was also a pre-pandemic problem as well. It's interesting, uh, just, just a side note, is using the analogy of halos and halo worship, because that's like, that's a whole other podcast <laughs> about, the pro- about the issues well, and problems that and, can arise there. And I'll say for your benefit too, Cheryl, I was listening to Chris say, like, you know, we thought that there was a safety net, that there was an illusion of a safety net, right? We thought that the system was here to protect us if we fell and, and then you start falling and you're like, oh shit, not actually there. But I've heard you say a number of times in other conversations that for the disability community, that was already known that the system was not there. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And that's, it's tough because I've seen a lot of disability advocates, disabled advocates fighting for protections against COVID for themselves and for everyone, because I would like to avoid getting more sick. And I don't want people to be sick. I don't want people to be long-term sick. And then lately there's been more people becoming forever COVID sick. And that's, that's a whole other topic for another day. But now let's chat about some billionaires who didn't follow the advice of Dr. Jennifer Russell or the province of New Brunswick (laughs) and did acknowledge. (laughs) Um, They did acknowledge that a pandemic is happening and they did acknowledge that it is airborne and did take the precautionary principle in preventing transmission from occurring. So how did they do that? Who are they? Well, listeners, welcome to the World Economic Forum. There's a great article. I'm just going to read a little excerpt from it. It was published in Forbes by Bruce Lee, and it's titled World Economic Forum. Here are all the COVID-19 precautions at Davos 2023. So Davos is a city where the World Economic Forum conference is held. What is the WEF, the World Economic Forum? So I'm just going to read this little excerpt because he describes it quite succinctly. If you are wondering why you didn't get an invitation to Davos, maybe you weren't quite special enough. The WEF isn't something that you can crash or use a Groupon to attend. It's by invitation only. Attendees include several thousand investors, business leaders, political leaders, economists, celebrities, and the like. Founded on January 24th, 1971 by German engineer and economist Klaus Schwab, the WEF is a not-for-profit foundation that, quote, engages in the foremost political, business, cultural, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas, as described by the WEF website. Most other everyday gatherings are more to shape a pile of mashed potatoes than to, quote, shape global, regional, and industry standards. So the WEF Davos 2023 is clearly a collection of people who have access to resources, connections, and influences that most people don't have. In January of 2023, some very influential people gathered. What did that look like? Well, thankfully, we have on Twitter, we have Dr. Lucky Tran, who recapped some of that information. And what they wrote was, Billionaires are hoarding every tool possible to protect themselves. Will they say to the rest of us, let them eat COVID? 
And that was a quote retweet from Amanda Hugh, who wrote, wow, so let's recap. Point, PCR to enter with an access wristband tied to the result, a HEPA air cleaners in every room, possibly amped up ventilation, UVGI slash far UVC, mask of some events, aka exactly what we have proposed for schools, conferences, workplaces, because COVID is not over. So Lucky Tran goes on to explain what the precautions were in place to protect the wealthy. A lot of them align with the recommendations from Mr. Kelly Lamrock's report, a lawyer in New Brunswick. So protect your health during the annual meeting. There's rapid antigen self-tests. There's masks. There's wellness, which is a dedicated COVID-19 hotline. There's ventilation and disinfection. There's on-site testing. And this is where participants must show their annual meeting badge to take a test at a forum testing center. Badge holders with access to the exclusivity zone are eligible to take a test at one of the forum testing centers. Tests administered outside the official testing centers provided by the forum are not eligible to activate the badge. Participants who recently contracted COVID-19 are required to take an on-site test in compliance with the protocol, which was developed by the forum and its provider for such cases. And then the last point is positive COVID-19 results. In the case a participant contracts COVID-19, the participant's badge will be deactivated and will no longer be granted access to the meeting venues. To request support, participants can contact the COVID-19 hotline provided in the email with the positive results. Dr. Lucky Tran's last point is, will elites take every COVID precaution possible when they meet with each other at the World Economic Forum, they go home and tell us that COVID is no longer a threat and the pandemic is over. Actions speak louder than words. Like my heart is beating faster just reading that. Like, yeah, yeah. Like almost a year <gasps> later after we've, and everybody in the world has been subject to rhetoric that COVID is mild. Herd immunity is the goal. It's just a flu. Rhetoric calling for the removal of masks, questioning the effectiveness, and even going so far as to suggest that masks cause illness. Rhetoric around droplets and, and COVID not being airborne and around vaccinations, their efficacy and these kind of things. We have been hit over the head with these narratives over and over and over again, all to justify the removal of protections from the public, the removal of protections from schools, like we've been talking about all day here today. We're subject to the words, we're subject to these recommendations flowing out of the systems that we are told to trust, but the actions being taken by rich and powerful people speak a lot louder than those words that are coming out of those systems. And Davis, like when, when I saw this, and I think I can speak for all of us, like when we see this. It shows us that this new abandonment we've been experiencing over the last year is really firmly based on, on class. The concepts of herd immunity, mild COVID, endemicity, and benign mass infection don't apply to the wealthy and the elite. So I think the takeaway here is that they don't apply to us. Mm. Mm-hmm. What we what we have heard from February 28th in New Brunswick to today is a lie. It is. It is. And when we do our right to information requests, 
not only do we see that we're being lied to, but that they have access to and are pushed from PIHA an incredible amount of well-organized information that should not be leading them to make the policies that they're making. Because the policies that they're making very obviously harm all of us, not just in the short term, but in the long term. And the alternative is to be Davos safe. Other advocates have identified this as a potentially really fruitful area for advocacy, which is showing people what the elite have and pointing out the class difference. A lot of the famous COVID minimizers, their children go to private schools where the air quality was improved, where they have portable filtration. In the past, they've had good quality masks and still have had mask requirements. The children of the people that are making claims like masks are the scarlet letter of the pandemic, those children go to private schools where the air quality is so much better than the air quality of the schools in New Brunswick that don't have any mechanical ventilation. We are not asking for too much to ask that schools and public buildings be safe. And this is something that Lemrock talks about. He said school attendance is mandatory and that the government has a higher responsibility on them to provide a safe environment when attendance is required. If schools are where our children have to be, why can't our schools be Davos safe with filtration? And with improved ventilation and with transparency, with CO2 monitors that can be checked virtually to show everything is totally fine with the ventilation in my child's classroom today. And what's interesting about Lamrock's document and his back and forth with both Jennifer Russell and with the Department of Education, I feel like they take great pains to make it look like there's going to be an ongoing dialogue. All parties mention a back and forth, mention cooperation mention having a look at their recommendations, responding to them, potentially incorporating them. Of course, none of that has happened. These documents make it look like there is going to be an ongoing dialogue and attention is still going to be paid to this. That's not what's happened. They will not allow us to improve the safety during a pandemic, during an airborne pandemic. We are not being allowed to improve the health and safety in our children's classrooms. And meanwhile, you've got the billionaires in these photographs from their meeting right behind them. You can see the air purifier. You can see that they're wearing their winter coats and that the windows are open. Like the fact that the world's elite are using all the tools that we're begging for, for our children. It's, I, there's no words sometimes. I just have to like unclench my jaw to be able to speak right now. To me, the Davos Forum shows a number of different things. One, it's another kick at the false narrative of the American dream that anyone can be a millionaire. Because if anyone can be a millionaire, why are the health of millionaires only being protected? Why isn't the health of everyone being protected? Because technically, can't everyone climb the ladder and become a millionaire? Well, they can't if they're becoming infected over and over again with a disabling and deadly disease. So clearly it's only access for some and it's only access for the wealthy. 
So it's just another blatant show that it's the herd. We're out here in our COVID soup mess. So that's one, the false narrative of the economic climb. Two is that these interventions and safety measures are incredibly easy to do. And it's things in New Brunswick that we did for 2020 and 2021. We did these things for two years and then just magically stopped for unknown reasons and fabricated lies because concerts. I was just kind of doing some math and I was thinking that crack open the window in a kid's classroom wear some masks. Masks can be bought in bulk supply. For me, I can buy a box of masks for roughly 50 cents a mask. Like for for one of the high quality respirators, you can wear them for roughly around 40 hours. So that's one a week. So basically it's 50 cents a week. There's definitely not 52 weeks in the school year because there's March break, Christmas, and the summer vacation taken out. So we take those 52 weeks, let's cut out 10 of them. So now we've got 42 weeks. So we'll take that in half. We got 24. So it's $24. It's $24 for respirators to prevent my children from becoming repeatedly infected from a known disabling disease. $24. Like if we actually cared about learning loss, we'd care about disease prevention. Yes. And clean air and Davos standards in school. Like, oh, come on. Before I wrap up, final thoughts from Chris? <laughs> I put out the question on Twitter that we were discussing the Landmark Report and sent out a question about what people's questions might be about it. And we had a, a couple of responses and they, they sort of fell into the form of, you know, what what is their plan to protect kids during the next pandemic? And I guess the answer to that, I, if they're referring to the child and youth advocate, I don't imagine they have any plan. The track record so far is one of reactive commentary, really, and, and nothing else. The report that we're discussing today is pretty damning. And even though time has shown that the problem has really only gotten worse than originally perceived at the time the report was published, no additional action has ever been taken. If you're referring to the government, I'd say the last year has shown conclusively that the system's government bases its authority and legitimacy on are not there to protect children. And as we mentioned just a little bit ago, probably never were. When I was reading this again today, there was a quotation in the report that kind of stunned me breathless for a moment. And it's on page nine of, of the report. Lamrock had written, New Brunswick children should have a decision made and justified by New Brunswick officials. And throughout his report, he repeatedly made this point that the public deserves accountability that he made it clear a few times with his questions to Russell that this prediction was made that everything was going to be okay for dropping masks. And he asked a few times in a few different ways, what if it's not okay? What metrics are you using to decide when you need to do something different? What will you do if it turns out that you need to act again to protect children? And New Brunswick children do deserve to have these decisions made and justified by New Brunswick officials. And we deserve to be able to ask these questions. We deserve to have these questions answered. And when they're answered with lies, we deserve justice for New Brunswick children. 
Well said, Kay. And well said, Chris. For listeners, you can probably hear the change in my voice. It's just, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in of knowing that there's simple tools and strategies that are incredibly affordable and incredibly simple to implement and that the institutions in place who are responsible for creating safe spaces for our children, for us, have failed to do that and still fail to do that. I guess I'm just going to say it. Something I've learned through this discussion is how incredibly disposable my life seems to government and to public health and to the others in place. And that is so wrong. And I know it's not true. And I know it's not true for everybody else as well. Everyone's life has value and meaning. I don't need public health to tell me that. And I don't need the government to tell me that. And if they're not looking out for us, which they clearly aren't, I'm going to continue looking out for myself and I'm going to continue looking out for my family and I'm going to continue sharing this message to anyone and everyone that'll listen because we can all do the right thing in keeping us safe. We all have value. Some days it's tough to see. Some days... I get doubts, but I know I'm not going to let those people hurt me. And I don't want them to hurt you either. I truly believe that the most important thing is to talk about it and to have these open and honest conversations. And then we can take what we've learned and we can create that action. And then we can maybe even create that advocacy and we can create that movement. Right now, we can plant those seeds and we can take those actions. And maybe you're someone who's listening, whose friend has shared this with you, and this is all new information. And maybe you haven't been doing any of the things. That's okay, because you can start today. Today, you can start living like a billionaire. (laughs) today we can all live like billionaires and be davos safe (laughs) rich in filtration rich in clean air rich in knowledge right (laughs) exactly (laughs) quite a time it's quite a time I'm going to continue being safe. And, you know, why not be Davos safe at the same time? So thank you. Thank you, everyone, for sharing your time with us, for listening to us. We so, so appreciate it. If you have some thoughts you'd like to share, you can contact us. We're on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at apanpod, A-P-A-N-P-O-D. We love to hear the feedback that we receive. It really, really helps us continue forward. All of the information we share is freely available. This is what we like to do. We care about you. So stay healthy, stay safe. Till next time. 